0: Welcome to Martyr. She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. All right. Martyrs, welcome. Today, I have Yet another survivor of religious trauma with us who actually grew up in the Philippines. I know, I know. I'm trying, I'm trying to branch out, but there's just so much juicy religious trauma content among the MK community, unfortunately. But today, my guest is Dr. Adam Cobb. Adam, thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, this is great.
0: I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Okie dokie. Well, currently I spend uh, the majority of my time professionally um, trying to develop tools for what I would call regenerative agriculture and help spread um, that message. So it's really like sort of a science communication role sometimes a science problem solving role, but I work for an online school where we try to train people in these alternative methods for um, managing their soils so that uh, we don't have this looming crisis (laughs) for humanity that's just continuing to to rear its ugly head between climate change and erosion and other issues. So I'm very passionate about the 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 need to change um, the way that we produce food in the world.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I googled you earlier, just to kind of get a feel for what it is that you do. And I there were a lot of words about soil and plants and fungi and stuff that I was not familiar with. So <laughs> I'm glad that you're doing that work, though. Mm-hmm. What What's it been like sort of thinking about climate change and sort of that existential threat, uh, paired with the experience of religious trauma?
1: For me, this goes back to the level of responsibility that maybe I internalized um, from a very young age. So the world is full of issues. Like this is the this is the era that we live in, right? We have a lot of of, of looming problems, including with the environment. And so it's sort of like when I become aware of something new, I end up really internalizing like my need to help fix it and I think a lot of that comes from messaging I would I would put it squarely like more in the institutions that I came through so not only at Faith Academy where you and I both went I was there for middle school and high school but also some other experiences I had I can get into a story about one when I was 16 that was like a real turning point for me in terms of my, my faith and my sense of, of mission in life. And then I went to a liberal arts uh, Nazarene Christian college in Ohio. And then I went and worked at a, a Christian like nonprofit ministry in Chicago for a couple of years. And that's really where that was a major turning point for me in terms of like wanting to be involved with organized religion, pretty much such a horrible experience <laughs> that I wanted to get out. But then when I went to academia for a decade, that big mission that you can burn yourself out with, that's still there. And I had already practiced so many of those workaholic, um, you know, taking on more responsibility than any human could. And, and even like some part of it I could call hubris or pride because it's sort of like this message that you tell yourself that you have to be some golden child's problem solver in these situations
0: yeah there's there's definitely I think a pattern of uh dare I say savior complexes among <laughs> among missionary kids or pastors kids or you know even just people who are in evangelical education systems mm-hmm. because it's just so focused on our responsibility to you know, not save the world, but help God save the world. Right. Okay. So tell me, you mentioned some of those school systems and the messages that you got. What, what do you feel like you learned from the various uh, schools that you went to?
1: Okay. So um, I'm sure because you've had some other folks like Caleb on that went to Faith Academy, these themes have come up, but It was actually kind of a weirdly competitive atmosphere. I remember being very competitive with my peers, like, oh, you only got a 3.5 this semester, not a 3.7 like me, you know, kind of thing. And, And maybe that was partially just my nerdy little peer group, but there was this thing of like, they celebrated us, which was nice. Art was celebrated, like, people, of course, sports, um, scholarship of various kinds, like, were really elevated. I was in choir, and that was always, it felt like we were going around being appreciated for what we did and what we were bringing to the table. But there's also just this kind of sense of doing at all times. And even like I've talked to some of my, my friends from the class of 2001 where it was like, they didn't really, the adults didn't really like us hanging out after, like there was the two o'clock bus and the four o'clock bus. Uh-huh. If we didn't have some kind of official activity, they didn't want us to just spend time with each other after school. And that's really weird. I don't know if they thought we'd get up to no good or like.
0: Was it like a purity culture thing maybe?
1: a little bit but i mean you could be hanging out with your buddies in public you know in the halls or something and it kind of be like well you, what should you be doing right now go home and do your homework or something i don't know but that just constant sort of i would call it puritanical work ethic right that that sense of like righteousness good behavior is just productivity at almost all times we really suffuse that place
0: yeah yeah i I definitely got that feeling too, where it's kind of like the virtue of busyness, mm-hmm. you know, if you're not actively doing something, you're wasting your time and you know potentially wasting God's time too mm-hmm. and i I think missionary culture lends itself to that sort of like like there is no time that you're off the clock,
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Okay. So, so you, you went to faith Academy in the Philippines. Uh, I think you were in the class just a year ahead of me. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you came back for college. What was that experience like?
1: Well, interestingly, like there were so many ways in which my peer group at this, you know, 1500 students in this liberal arts Christian college, many of my peer group there were like we were slackers in high school so they were really serious about college and i did a lot of the opposite like first of all coming from faith academy with the dress code and everything i was like i'm gonna wear t-shirts and jeans every day and uh, like i'm gonna get up and like roll into a ten thirty class i'm not even gonna sign up for the early classes
0: wild
1: <laughs> yeah, I just I was like this and I don't play video games I'm I spent massive number of hours, especially in the last couple of years doing technical theater work, because that was my friend group. And so like building sets and doing lighting and stuff. That was where I was just like 800 hours a semester. And then I would be like, you know, if I make A's and B's, I'm good in my classes, which was very different from how I felt in high school. And, and that place was Rigorous in certain ways, and I um, I think part of this that's coming up for me is uh, it's something I was telling a coworker of mine the other day that like I sort of always feel like I'm a project, a spiritual project. Uh, intellectual project. It's like, I'm always trying to build my capacity. I just wake up every day with this thought of like, how can I evolve? How can I be better? And I think in that college atmosphere, while it wasn't necessarily so much academically at that time in my life, spiritually, I was constantly trying to push myself to like, get to a new level of understanding deep in my theological framework, um, have more experiential relationship with God. I was really involved in some weekend ministries in the inner city. So uh, we spent a lot of time just like restocking food pantries and things and all of that stuff felt like push yourself, go further, become a quote unquote, you know, better version of yourself or a better Christian, like reach for that. I don't know if perfection is the right term, but reach for a, a higher level, kind of like um, in Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, or in the last Narnia book, they say like heaven is just going further up and further in, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Farther up and farther in. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Was that message something that was being reinforced by like church leaders or professors, or was that more like an internally motivated thing?
1: Yeah, so okay, I mentioned that there was a big turning point in my teenage years, um, and so I think this this kind of characterizes the way that the external becomes the internal. Uh, I went to a big Nazarene youth event. So I was raised Nazarene, which is sort of Methodist kind of related theologically, and um, I went to this big youth. They called it a youth congress, and it was like ten thousand Nazarene kids from. Mostly the U.S., but there were lots of us there There were MKs, right? A lot. I got to hang out with a lot of my friends. And for about a week, this 10,000 Christian kids descended on Toronto, Canada. And they, like, pulled in, you know, the Christian rock groups to do concerts. And they had just so many speakers and so much praise and worship for the whole week you know is it just a huge thing where you're in a stadium seating thing with 10,000 other youth and of course they do that big emotional like kind of final night like you know some of you in the audience god is putting a call on your life to give yourself to the ministry oh no and you you feel that even now and like my parents never really pushed me in this regard, but both of them felt a call to be missionaries very young. They met in college, they part of how they knew that they belonged together was that they had both felt that call from before the age of 10. So I'm 16. I'm feeling a feeling I'm getting some tingles in this environment. I'm having a lot of my peers who are also MKs, that they're crying that they're reacting to this. And so it's like, you go down to the altar and like, they would say like, say yes to God, say yes to what God wants to do with you and your life and all that stuff. And so it's like, it felt really good at 16 to take that sense of purpose and mission into my heart.
0: That language is so interesting of say yes to God, because it's like Mm -hmm. the only alternative is to say no to God.
1: Right. (laughs) And what does that get you? Yeah. No,
0: like no one's going to choose that. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay. So in your idea, like what was saying yes to God, what were you saying yes
1: to? Mm. So at its highest, the kingdom of God to me was about trying to transform the systems of this human society, not through a political thing like Christian nationalism, but through a relational experience to to try to to be there for communities that historically have been underserved, to work towards justice and love, right, a society based on justice and love. And so that was some of what launched me into my experience post college where I went to Chicago. And there was this new nonprofit. So I got a business degree, and I wanted to primarily go help make sure that, you know, their accounting and operations and stuff like all fit. Um, generally, the people that started it were like, I don't know, we just did this thing. It, we don't know what we're doing. And so I took on the responsibility of trying to make it functional, I guess. But it was an after school program. And we primarily had a group of teens in North Chicago that were probably 80 to 90% um, second generation immigrants from Latin America. And so some of them were undocumented because they had been born, they had, their parents didn't go to the hospital when they were born. They don't have a social security number. Some of them have memories of being a kid in Guatemala or um, mexico or somewhere else in central america uh, but a lot of them they're like their spanish is not as good as their english kind of thing right and then we started a second site in west chicago that was like 98 percent african-american community and it was absolutely like the church location you know two blocks down there's people selling heroin like it was one of those kind of deep poverty as a bunch of white guys mostly Showing up as the staff members, we got profiled by the Chicago cops all the time. They would pull us out of our cars and search us and stuff because they thought five white guys in a car in this neighborhood are here to buy drugs. Up to no good. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that there was also some of that savior complex that we were talking about Mm -hmm. acting in each one of us there. But despite that, we made authentic relationships with the after school students that came to us. We were making some really authentic relationships within those communities. We lived in that north side neighborhood, which was being gentrified at the time. So we we watched it changing as the, you know, yuppies came in. (laughs) And it was a really authentic, you know, urban experience in America. I, I think it would be fairly analogous to like AmeriCorps when people do that kind of thing. But it was also really depressing. And it was depressing that the churches we worked with often were really failing those communities. They weren't, people weren't living there. They thought of like, these kids are a disruption. Why aren't they coming to Sunday school? Hmm. (laughs) Right? It was just a lot of kind of nasty attitude. And that really was a huge part of what pushed me To say, "Mm, I'm not into this organized thing anymore. Organized around religion.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned that there were some kind of like internalized messages like the savior complex. But what other messages were in that organized religious group that you kind of were reacting against?
1: Hmm. Well, I think there was a lot of guilt. So like we were 22 in the Chicago setting. And so sometimes we just we didn't know how to move forward, how to do things. We would get, you know, we just didn't have the experience to necessarily say, here's the solution to whatever financial issue we're facing as an organization. But then we would get this message that it was kind of like, if we were just better Christians, we would have those answers, like God would magically put them in our brains, or like, Hmm. we would just be diligent enough, there was, I got a lot of messaging about like, diligence and negligence, and sort of this idea that if you're spiritually diligent enough, and, you know, if you cared enough about the mission, that you would have the answers, yeah, that you would not be confused about or 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 not be sad about things like you know we're living in circumstances sometimes there that were really situationally depressing and then you'd feel like i can't be dysfunctional i'm not allowed to be dysfunctional
0: right and and if you are dysfunctional then it proves something about your spiritual health Mm -hmm. not about your circumstances
1: right yeah I think that that's a very common experience among many of my peers, wherever they went after after high school, that if they got involved in ministry or deeply involved in a spiritual community, that there's sort of that, at the very least, putting on a good face, Put, putting on that mm. happy face.
0: <laughs> I definitely remember a lot of those guilt messages. Do you think that that created any, you know, sort of undue anxiety or depression or other like mental health symptoms for you?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Like I was really unaware of my anxiety until COVID. I think a lot of people might share that. But things got real dysfunctional for a while in the summer of 2020 for me. Just like my normal cadence of waking up and feeling excited about what I was doing in research or publications or um, getting ready to teach classes, that sort of, you know, because in general, I was really happy with my academic career. And I'd had some years of really uh, feeling like I was just just doing the damn thing. Like, I was like, not everybody can publish papers or teach classes where the students enjoy it and stuff. And, and I, I saw myself on this trajectory towards the professoriate and was getting the messages that my productivity was going to lead to jobs. Right. Like, through, you know, 150 people will apply to a tenure track professor job. And it was like, you're probably going to get it because your record And um, so it felt good until it didn't. (laughs) The the pandemic really, just before the pandemic, I was on a trip and a friend asked me what my career stuff was like. And I realized, I don't want to do this for 25 or 30 more years. Yeah. And then two weeks later, we were all in lockdown. And I was like, well, that was the right choice. Like this all confirms it because a lot of the, value system of career evaporated when the pandemic came around like achievement what does that mean when you're scared that your family is going to get a disease and die
0: yeah yeah well and and not to mention just it's so much easier to avoid burnout or confronting the fact that you have burnout when you're just going 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 but the pandemic i think forced a lot of us to just actually pay attention. Yeah. And (laughs) it was, it was sobering for a lot of us.
1: So I went to a therapist during that time and I'd already seen her once before related to grief when my brother passed away. And this time I said, I'm feeling really, I was doing that dissociating thing where I was trying to edit a paper and I would realize it sat there on my computer and I'd edit a sentence. And then I'd be like, "I just lost half an hour in like worry and rumination over this like life <laughs> that we're all trying to deal with the 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 trauma of this collective thing, and you know then I'd edit another sentence mm. and then I'd dissociate for half an hour, right It was like that some days, yeah. And so, you know, where I where I had been used to before having the focus and attention to just blast through like 20 pages of editing in a day, I was like, Oh, I did two. And it was exhausting. Yeah. So I I went to see this therapist. And she talked to me about anxiety and how because we have these monkey brains, (laughs) that anxiety is this like leftover kind of piece of a a thing that made sense at one time for us to really have um, the sensitivity to threats in our environment, but now we kind of invent threats. And I mean, there are real threats still in the modern world, don't get me wrong, but many of us who are living in relative non-threatening circumstances will still find something to be anxious about. And I realized that my anxiety often Manifested not as worry, actively, but as a self-critical voice.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. So at the end of my day, even if I had been super productive, this voice would be like, "Yeah, but you you quit at four thirty instead of pushing through to six thirty. Like, oh, you did a you 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 worked on these papers today, but what about that class? You really owe it to your students to." Make that PowerPoint better or whatever. And they were just like, it was relentless. It was real, like I could always invent a reason why I hadn't done enough.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like a ever lowering limbo bar, you know, like you're, <laughs> you're, you think you're doing good and then it lowers and you got to try harder and you got to try harder. Right. That definitely is a feeling I can relate to. And I think a lot of folks with religious trauma can relate to that sort of like never ending push Mm -hmm. to keep trying and keep improving. And then the shame just doesn't ever let you feel like you've gotten to a safe place. Like you can't stop. You can't rest.
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, you ask about the institutions, uh, you know, that I went to and the messages I think one of the parts that still makes me upset, when I think back on it, because I don't have a lot of emotional upset, I think that was the life I lived, there were highs and lows and pros and cons and trade offs. And, you know, and I'm glad for the journey I've had and letting a lot of it go. But the thing that still kind of makes me upset is I'm like, they took a bunch of teens, and the, the adults around us, Uh, not my family so much, but the like the teachers at Faith Academy or whatever, I felt like they intentionally tried to cultivate within us a guilty, self-critical voice. And then they said, that's God. That's God. When you when you hear that you're not doing well enough, that's God. Totally.
0: Or like when you feel that icky shame feeling in your stomach. Yep. That might be the Holy Spirit convicting you of something.
1: Yep. And I remember, like, there was a book I read a couple times in high school. I wish I could remember the name of it. Uh, it was very small, but the whole theme of it was pretty much like that you have to empty yourself of yourself and ask God to fill you up instead. So, like, take the ego and ask God to rip it out of you by the roots and put the Holy Spirit in its place. And I think that that's really weird
0: yeah it is (laughs)
1: I think it's a really weird concept
0: it's it's yeah that's like it's like Freud if Freud was like hyper religious (laughs) just (laughs) just this idea of like who's the core you know what's the core of you all right now delete that and replace it Mm -hmm. with only God
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I really didn't again get that message from my parents in like the theological tradition that I came out of is much more Focused on like grace and like ideas like soul liberty or the sovereignty of individual mm. to work out what their beliefs are, and there's much less of that sense of like forbidding boundary of things that you don't where where you don't go in your belief system and all. It's more free range, mm-hmm. you know, relational. However, i I got a very different message in like Bible classes and just in the evangelical over culture. Yeah. Of, like, we don't question X. Like, it's still really hard for me, Anna, when I'm up against some sense of authority to voice opposition because we were, like, I feel like we were just conditioned, even through college, to be like, the leaders are God's chosen and you cannot oppose them without it being like an opposition to God.
0: Yeah. Did that extend to not necessarily just religious leaders, but authority figures of any kind?
1: I think to some degree, I mean, in my mid 20s, like I did a lot more of that. Oh, all authority is just an illusion. <laughs> We're just like living in a <laughs> matrix. And, you know, or like, okay, to, to be a little bit more highbrow with it, it's like Plato's allegory of the cave mm-hmm. like i started to get that idea that i'm like i'm just looking at shadow puppets and if some shadow puppets claim that they're more authoritative than others they're all just shadow puppets since all just made up you know the only thing that's real here is how we treat each other as people the connections that we have the relationships that's what's meaningful and everything else about our society is just it's a fairy tale
0: mm. Going back to that like authority figure thing, I can imagine in academia, there probably are a lot of times where you're having to debate something or disagree with someone respectfully Mm -hmm. or, you know, point out an issue. Do you think that those situations created maybe more anxiety for you because of your history?
1: Yeah, gosh, a lot of times this was also like patriarchy. (laughs) And white supremacy, and academia has a problem with white males being the gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. And so I would take that and I would talk to my peers and stuff and be like, no, it's all bullshit. They're wrong. Like, this is not the way that this has to be. It is interesting because there's an overlay in this. I really believe in using science as a tool. The culture around the scientific community has problems. But the thing itself, which is like replicated, carefully controlled experimentation to try to understand what accurately is the way that physical reality works. That's very valuable. I mean, we wouldn't have airplanes without it. We wouldn't have COVID vaccines without it. Like, it's a powerful thing. And so I'm like, there's a way in which that is authority, I'm saying that there's a framework that is more a more valid way to find out how the world works than somebody sitting around high, like having a conversation about how the world works, right? That that one has more authority than the other because of the process and peer review is part of that. And it's like a very powerful thing to have your kind of collaborative rivals check your work and be, be accountable to them. So I'm not against any of that per se, I just see like, I see blind spots in it. And I see that sometimes the the voices which we most need to be elevated, Hmm. which often are the voices of women and minorities and neurodivergent people, that gets stamped out by white males in the science community. So their authority is completely illegitimate to me.
0: Yeah. Did you see echoes of that in the Christian communities that you were in as far as just like certain voices being valued above others or, or gatekeeping?
1: Mm, yes. You know, I, I think that, of course, a lot of, the, a lot of the culture in the missionary community is very ethnocentric male energy there's ethnocentric male energy in that and like we get caught up in those things where we might say mm-hmm. well blah 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 blah, filipinos are like this and those messages are heard and reinforced and it's like this weird like oh you know these people that aren't americans they're like they're trying their hardest bless their hearts kind of thing and that like that's in that community Mm-hmm. i'm really trying every day to like pull that stuff out of my brain and thinking.
0: Yeah. I feel like one of the weirdest things for me to wrap my head around like post deconstruction was recognizing how much othering there had been Mm -hmm. towards other cultures, other races But under the guise of, no, 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 we're not, we're not racist. We actually Mm -hmm. love, we love them, you know, and this is love, but yet there's still so much othering. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, I think it, it just was confusing that the word love was synonymous with that
1: ethnocentrism that you're talking about. Yep. Yep. And what's amazing is, again, if I reach for like the, the positive in that, there were what, like 40 something countries represented at Faith Academy? I had, I where where in your mm-hmm. life, where, where in the world do you get to say, like, oh, my senior year, I had a friend that was from Sri Lanka and a friend that was from Myanmar and a friend that was Korean? And like, it's incredible. Like, yeah. We kind of jokingly call the place Hogwarts because <laughs> it's such a magical little unique place. But then it's that subtle overculture. Yeah that you can you can say the overculture is screwed up like you're allowed to but it's it continues to be something i'm trying to be braver with at every organization that i'm involved with now is to call out the dysfunctional tones that get in there.
0: Yeah. Oh, you know, i totally resonate with that sort of tuple of patriarchy kind of attitude. Not like let's burn the system down, but like let's question the way that it functions and not just go with tradition for the sake of it.
1: Right. Yeah. Like Ibram X. Kendi's uh, anti-racism philosophy is also that like what the individual feels in their heart about other races is much less important than what the systems do. So that's where I like go, okay, does the consequence of a system like the academic system lead to a much lower representation of minorities than is in the general population. Why is there a filter? Why is that place whiter than America? And that's the kind of way that I like pick at it and say, like, I can hold the system accountable.
0: Yeah. So tell me about your spiritual journey, Mm because it sounds like you've kind of been there and back again, you know, or, or maybe not back again, (laughs) but where, where do you consider yourself now?
1: Yeah. I use the term post-religious a lot to describe myself where, you know, the value system, the philosophies and ethics, those, which I still agree with, that I picked up through my spiritual journey are still very important to me and my sense of identity in the world. So, um, you know, a great example of this would be, it's amazing that anybody who uses the label Christian missed the verse where it said, in Christ, there's no Greek or Jew, no male or female, no slave or three. Because I'm like, therefore, gender, ethnic background, and socioeconomic status cannot be used to make insiders and outsiders. Mm -hmm. That's a value that I carry with me still to this day. And when I see people being othered because of those kinds of categories of their identity, I'm like, that's not going to stand with me. (laughs) I'm assertive enough in most circumstances to say like, "Mm -mm." you don't get to decide who's who's other who's in and who's out based off of some criteria. So okay, in my mid to late 20s, I, I did that more reactionary thing where I went pretty hard towards like a more materialistic, naturalistic, non-spiritual worldview. And that was at the same time with me choosing at 28 to become a scientist, which I don't recommend to anybody <laughs> necessarily. If <laughs> I had to run to catch up because I didn't get an undergrad in science or anything either. I think it had been eight years since I even took a biology class when I was just like, I'll become a scientist.
0: <laughs> so you, you were kind of running from anything spiritual in nature.
1: Yes. At that
0: point. What next?
1: Well, I, um I continued to have people of different faith traditions in my life. I had a roommate that was raised Muslim. That was really cool to experience. So I learned a lot through that and, and, the compare and contrast of how I was raised and how he was raised. Other friends that are very hardcore like atheists and more and more people in my life now that are just like, I don't really know what to call this grand love that I feel in the universe, but it's there, like I'm convinced it's there. I would say I have spiritual experiential feelings connected to my worldview. But dogmatizing any of that, systematizing any of that, creating a theology around it, that's real abstract to me now.
0: Yeah. Was that difficult, letting go of that rigid framework that you, know, you had, had so instilled in you before?
1: Hmm. I got really lucky in that about the time that this was really kicking off for me, I moved to Stillwater, Oklahoma to go to grad school, And I met a few people that were raised as Nazarene pastor's kids, and they were going through the same deconstruction work. And so I had these deconstruction bros, and that was just really lucky that it was, you know, we sometimes went at different phases or in different chunks, like maybe one of us would deconstruct ahead of the others, but then we would help pull them along. Right. And it wasn't linear by any means. And sometimes I would go back or I would go to a church and I'd be like, there's something really authentic here. Like I'll re-examine this, you know, but then other times I'd go to a church and be like, I'm so glad I don't go to church very much anymore because that was super weird. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at that point, once you kind of transitioned into your career in science, was there still that feeling of like i need to be working i need to be doing and achieving all the time or had that kind of receded
1: it's interesting like there were seasons so during my phd years i remember really working hard towards the beginning and then getting a magical couple of years in the middle where i felt so confident i guess and like i didn't i didn't feel like a pretender anymore i felt like i showed up with a lot of science papers in my head and I knew how to reference things and and so it's like well I bring something to the table but don't ask me to do math (laughs) (laughs) of course towards the end of PhD you're so stressed trying to get done and like I was grinding my teeth at night just to get that dissertation finished and and to get out the door but then I stayed at the same lab and institution for my postdoc and in there The more success I had, the next year I would feel the more pressure. So in 2018, I published eight papers. I was the lead author on three of them and a co-author on five. But by saying like eight, which is pretty good for early career, the next year when I got three papers out because I was teaching so much more, I just felt like a failure. People are going to see that I peaked and I'm on the downhill. and then there started to feel this pressure about like well yeah but I haven't I also haven't gotten a paper out where I was the lead author of and like how am I going to get known for anything and be able to get more grant funding it's all just like this runaway train right the more success you have the harder you have to work to achieve more and it's just strange
0: yeah, the rat race for sure is is intense in academia, but also having that yeah that critic in your head, you know, from way back when mm-hmm. that's telling you you're you're never quite good enough and there's something that you need to be worried about. Yeah. So I know that in the academic world and in the scientific world, there's a lot of focus on status and prestige and like, you know, being known. But I also know that those are the exact things that in my Krishna upbringing, at least uh, that was really mm. frowned upon yeah. because of the pride, you know, that's apparently underlying all of that. Was that something you encountered?
1: Yeah, and and a big part of my crisis with saying I needed to leave academia is I felt myself be thinking in this like transactional way way too often. So I was worried that I was going to become more that way. But Mm -hmm. how I squared that circle a lot of times is I was like, I'm doing all this stuff that on the outside could look really prideful or status seeking behavior. But I know that the purity of the mission i feel yeah. in my heart that i won't be able to achieve that mission if i don't attain yeah. that status and influence like i thought of it as you know getting a seat at the table but the outside can work its way in and like justifying burning myself out or or using other people in a transactional way to get more papers and mm-hmm. more awards or whatever can eventually just become how you see the world.
0: That's that's interesting just that perspective,
1: mm. you know,
0: like what what's the what's the goal here? What's my motivation?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, if I was to tie it back to something from the religious era of my life, it would probably be the way that we celebrated individuals for how they built something for the kingdom of God like this missionary went to mozambique and they they built a church and it saved thousands of souls and like those 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 narratives come in mm-hmm. and then you just think okay like we are revering this human but it's because that narrative points us to what god did or whatever like that it it it's it's weird it's a weird cognitive dissonance i guess that we like celebrate mm-hmm. the people but then it's all Back to the mission,
0: right? Yeah, I definitely felt that way when I was first exposed to like mega church culture and like celebrity pastors. Mm. And it's like it's okay for us to worship them because Mm. they're doing so much for God. And so, like it's it's okay that we have this sort of dysfunctional, like really gross system in place because just look how many souls are coming to the lord because of it
1: <laughs> yeah and it's okay for them to have eight million untaxed dollars that they spend on big houses or whatever i mean uh-huh. we could go all the way to talking about the righteous gemstones if you want i don't know if you've seen that show oh,
0: i love that show <laughs> <laughs> that is so right. It's so
1: good corruption it's corruption uh-huh. right yeah yeah when I look back on my childhood and the dysfunctional or the the self-harming messages that I took in from Christianity, it really isn't from my family. It's from evangelical overculture. It's from institutional weirdness. I'm sure that there were a lot of really well-intentioned teachers and professors and stuff at these Schools mm-hmm. that thought, you know, they were trying to give us their best wisdom about how to live life right or whatever. But that's one of the things that happens in religion and generational culture and all of that is like the traumatized people traumatize people. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: So do you practice any kind of spirituality now? And if so, what does that look like?
1: So I spent. A year in Oregon after leaving academia uh, with a couple of my friends. And it was a great time for me to sort of explore some new things spiritually as well. And one of those, it's not, it's weird to call it spiritual because it doesn't have to be. And in fact, that's part of the flaw in the perception of it. But mindfulness, meditation, Mm. been really good for me. To learn more about how my own consciousness is and like when I get triggered with something to interrogate it in a way that's like it's okay that I feel this way or like it's okay that when I say this thing at my job I get that sense of I'm a bad person because I just criticized a leader right but let me sit with this and unpack it and yes and try to have compassion for it and the development of self-compassion through that process has led to a lot more compassion for other people in my life Mm -hmm. and a lot more of a capacity to step back what sometimes is called the observer and be that person that's saying look at these shadow puppets that are inside of how i feel (laughs) like this is all this is also not real my reactions are just echoes of things a lot of times. And this doesn't make me bad or um, wrong. It just means that when I was 16, something happened that like impressed a weird way of seeing the world on me. And, and so sitting with that and, and with some other friends who are going through similar things at this stage in life, and talking through how to just lean into A non dualistic compassion for myself and for other people. That's my biggest spiritual practice right now.
0: Yeah. Wow. That is such a great articulation of really the place where I feel like I am as well. Mm. Just noticing like that non judgmental exploration of Mm. internal reactions and responses. And it's like instead of being ready to slap a label of good or bad mm-hmm. on every single thing that I experience, I can just observe it and be curious about it
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: you know, ask, is this what I want to continue to do or would I like to work towards, you know, it maybe experiencing something different when I encounter this trigger? Mm. I love that. D- were there any specific? things that that you practice that mindfulness with that were really surprising or enlightening
1: hmm. because work and productivity were really important to me and like I don't think I mentioned that especially during my postdoc I was probably doing like 55 or 60 hours a week right I was spending most weekends when nobody else was around in my office, trying to get more work done. So like, it was definitely an obsessive side of human behavior. Mm -hmm. I think I have a lot of frustration at other people's inefficiency in a work environment. And so I try to sit with that and understand, A, that, yeah, the capitalistic overculture has made us all obsessed with efficiency. And sometimes people use language like, you know, sleep is productive. Right. And I'm like, I kind of get what you're trying to say because, like, you can't be productive without it. But we don't need to take this biological need and frame it into our ability to monetize it. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just so weird. It's the it's the way in which we most Americans <laughs> have gone through an education system that has prepared them to be like factory workers. Yeah. Right. And so we've been colonized by the thinking of efficiency and time and, and all of that stuff. So yeah, I have to sit with that. But then it's interesting because I also have to sit with the co-workers that I feel are super controlling and want to make everybody else more efficient, like sometimes managers and stuff. Bec- and I have to tell myself, like, well, they've got these screwed up goals, like probably being put on them mm-hmm. by somebody higher up to, you know, produce content and webinars and things like that. And so then they try to pressure that down into a kind of unspoken quota. Yeah. And I get really annoyed with that because I think it, kills creativity, and I try to live in a space where I'm doing a lot of creative work in my head and conceptualizing and ideating about the best way to communicate some weird thing about the soil, right? And then if I get pressure to like, but what what have you produced lately? Then I'm like, okay, well, that just makes me, like, it just makes me like lost. Like, like I, I can't be creative under these circumstances, right? So I get it on both ends. I have to deal with my reaction to other people to what I perceive as other people's inefficiencies. And I have to deal with feeling like other people are overly concerned about my efficiencies. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. It, I, I feel like one of the things that I had to deconstruct was the idea of laziness. Right. You know, because it's sort of like in the black and white dichotomy of always be working, always be serving if you are not actively working on something, then you are by default being lazy. Absolutely. But, but like, what time does that leave for living life? Mm -hmm. Not that work isn't living life. It is, but also, so is resting. So is spending time with loved ones. So is You know, playing video games, like those are not evil things. Mm -hmm. They're just part of the balance that makes us human.
1: Absolutely. Well, your episode really brought something up for me because you were talking about that sense of like the consequences of your actions as a kid on the mission field could be either more or fewer people that were saved from hell. Yeah. And I think that any time in excess, quote unquote, spent not working feels a little bit like saying like well it's okay for a few more people to fall through the cracks and go to hell like because i needed a mental health day or whatever (laughs) and so there's like this pressure that again i don't even i don't even see the world that way anymore but i still have the patterns of behavior of thinking like i'm losing forever an important opportunity if i play with my dog on the floor for 10 minutes instead of get this email written
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just the gravity (laughs) of each choice. (laughs) I, yeah, I still feel that way when I have to like, you know, schedule a day off Mm. and I'm telling my clients, you know, like I I need to reschedule. It's like, I have this deep guilt Mm. and shame, you know, like this is so bad. Like I'm valuing something else above them. And, and it's just like a constant conversation. I have to keep reminding myself of. That like me taking a day off is not neglecting my duty as a human being. Mm -hmm. It's, it's doing my duty because taking a day off is taking care of me. And that's a good thing.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I've had to actually try to actively tell myself, like, if you never produce another thing for the rest of your life, do you have the right to exist and enjoy this life? Ooh. But to recognize that everybody should feel that way. Every human that comes to this plane of existence should get the message that them existing and experiencing and enjoying life is their job. (laughs) Right? Like that is enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely feel that sense of balancing my empathy for other people's suffering with just trying to recognize that everything is not on my shoulders. So I'm not going to do either extreme. I'm not going to withhold and just feed myself only, but I'm also not going to give and give until I'm empty because neither of those extremes is adaptive.
1: Yeah, it's true. And like, I don't know what to call that middle ground even still sounds like the wrong term, like that dynamic, like positive tension that you can have between those things. Right. But in, in I'm trying to work with language that says like, what am I actually responsible for? Right. And that might be that happier, healthier place.
0: Yeah. Well, so. Before we do our little fun story, was there anything else that you wanted to add?
1: Hmm, I don't know. It feels pretty complete. Maybe five minutes after we hang up, I'll think like, darn it, there was a key point there, but (laughs) you know, it's an ongoing process. So um... yeah,
0: (laughs) well, the opportunity will be lost for all of eternity. So just keep that in mind. Um, okay. So we're, I'm trying to end each episode on a lighter note. Do you have anything from your years in religion that you think our listeners would like to hear?
1: Oh, that's funny because I thought of a story, but it's not necessarily so much tied to religion as culture. Okay.
0: No, Hey, I'll take that.
1: Okay. So I was with a few of my friends in Portland on Monday cause I was visiting and we were eating nachos together at a bar. And they started asking me like, like how I lived in the Philippines? Like what 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 were the circumstances? And I was like, Well, I lived in this place called Valley Gulf. And it was pretty countryside and pretty spread out. And I was maybe only like a mile or so from the school I went to. So I walked like plenty from my house down to there. And I I just, I didn't even think about this, but I said, like, you know, I would walk on the road (laughs) and I would walk past, like, maybe 400 of these fighting roosters. Yep. That just each had their own little, like, kind of a sandwich board. Like a little teepee. Mm -hmm. Type style little house. Yeah, that they could go into. And they were tied up by the foot or something. I don't even remember, but they were somehow just contained. And it might have been a breeding facility or something. Yeah. But... They were so horrified that I was just like, yeah, you know, they they like people take these roosters and they fight to the death and like they bet on them and stuff. And it was just it blew their minds that that it could be so normal and casual to me. And I'm like, well, I would never participate in something like that. And now I do understand like, but it was just life. It was like when you're at a, when you're 11 and you're walking past these roosters and you find out what they're there for, you're like, oh, OK.
0: <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yes. There were so many of those, like it's rough living anywhere near a a group of them because, you know, early in the morning, it is loud and noisy, but yeah, they're, they're Mm -hmm. little like shackles on their little legs. (laughs) It's kind of heartbreaking.
1: Really? You know, and then the next day I saw a BBC article about an initiative to do more like life skills training in some school in Kenya. And as part of it, they were like, there were these videos of the kids killing a chicken yeah, to cook it and eat it. And it got, it, it, of course, Twitter, like, there were people that didn't like that, you know, and there mm-hmm. were a lot of strong opinions about that. And then I was like, in sixth grade at Faith Academy, they handed us chickens to kill at outdoor education. Yeah. And we were like, this is dinner and cut their heads off and cleaned them out and cooked them and ate them.
0: I know. I remember that my Mm -hmm. knife that, that I had to use was so dull. And so I remember just like crying as I was trying to saw that stupid chicken's head off. Mm Oh, trauma.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the, the, that was, yeah, that's my thing of going like, you know, I involved in agriculture and I've raised animals and I've butchered animals like as an adult Uh too. And not everybody can do it.
0: Oh, that is a hundred percent me.
1: And like, but I'm just like, well, I don't know. I guess I, my heart was hardened to chickens a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. I love, I love those cross-cultural experiences that you kind of like, don't even realize are so out of the norm until Mm -hmm. you say it out loud to someone who hasn't experienced it. And they're like, you see this look of horror on their face. For sure well adam thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and definitely i appreciate your insight and perspective a lot
1: awesome well thanks so much for having me and and for for doing this project i look forward to future episodes cool cheers all right bye well
0: that's all she wrote for this episode if you have any questions lean not on your own understanding email me at anna at empathyparadigm.com. Bye.